0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I recently talked with Tom Morello, who has a new photo book coming out called Whatever It Takes. It's a retrospective of his entire life and career. He's also got an audible release on his way called Tom Morello at the Mineta Lane that does the same thing. He also just released a protest song called Stand Up with Dan Reynolds and Shay Diamond. So it seemed like a good time to have him look back. He talks about his childhood in Illinois, his time in Rage Against the Machine, in audio slave, and even that time he joined the E Street Band. He also inevitably addresses current events. It does seem like more people than ever are raging against the machine on the streets of the United States, and he certainly talks about that. We start by going over some photos from his book. If you want to see those photos, you can watch the video version of this conversation over on RS Interview Special Edition series on YouTube, but I think you'll get the idea. Here is my conversation with Tom Morello.
1: How are you holding up in general? How are you doing? (laughs) Uh, Hanging in there. The uh, Morello household, we have a 9-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 96-year-old, an 89-year-old, my wife, myself, and uh, two dogs. So it's kind of like we're running a nursing home, (laughs) a daycare center, and a kennel. And uh, (laughs) varying degrees of success. I wanted to
0: start by, uh, you have a book coming out called Whatever It Takes. It's a really great photo book that really brings your life to life. And uh, there's also an an audible release coming out, Tomorrow and Mineta Lane. And and that similarly lets you take a look back at your your entire life and career. And I really enjoyed uh, listening to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. You know, growing up as the only black kid in an all-white town and then being the only anarchist at a conservative high school then being the only spandex wearing heavy metal guitarist at Harvard university. And then going on to be the only, you know, star Trek loving nerd with an Ivy league degree in the biggest political rock rap band of all time has led to a rich mosaic of experiences. And, uh, you know, we were right now, we we're supposed to be on tour with Rage Against the Machine. And I had these projects were in the work for years the, the photo book for years and the Manetta Lane thing. And I put all of it on hold, you know, to concentrate all of my uh, energies on that. But then when uh, the sky fell uh, with Corona, uh, we had to push the tour back over a year. It was, you know, it felt like a potential lifeline, creative lifeline for me to re engage with those projects and be able to be creative and put stuff out that was meaningful and authentic during this crazy time.
0: I wanted to start by taking you through a few pictures uh, from the book that we're actually going to run in the, uh, the print magazine of Rolling Stone. And here is uh, the the all-American Tom Morello holding a uh, baseball bat. Yeah. What, what can you tell that's us a, about this? Uh, uh, Mar-
1: marseilles Illinois, late 60s. My original ambition was to be the shortstop for the Chicago Cubs. And that, uh, that remained my ambition until around 16 years old and I couldn't hit the curveball. But that's just me in front of the... Uh, The ancestral Morello home in Marseilles, Illinois, uh, spelled like Marseille, France, pronounced Marseilles because it's in central Illinois. And that is the small coal mining town that the Morellos uh, migrated to from Italy to become coal miners there. And my my mom grew up in that house and uh, I used to swing that swing that wiffle ball bat as hard as I could for the fences. Truly wanted to be an athlete, that was your first time. Oh yeah, right, I, was, I, I was a baseball player. I self-identified as a baseball player growing up and played Little League there in that town. Marcel's played Little League in Libertyville as well. But there's a, you know, there's a time where it really separates the men from the boys around 15, 16, where you're facing almost like kind of grown man pitching. And uh, that's when I pivoted to electric guitar. You describe
0: a moment when you were playing with one of your first bands and you're playing Born to be Wild, which you had four months to learn and you weren't sure they really. In fact, you thought there was no way you could learn "Born to Be Wild" in four months. Which, by the way, is not like the hardest song in the world. Um, uh,
1: well, you should have seen our, our <laughs> band. <laughs> yeah, there were there were three bands in my high school. Uh, there was the ultra popular band Destiny. They were beautiful men who sang beautiful cover songs at the time by REO, Speedwagon, and Sticks. And they were they were like the Beatles of the band. They were hugely popular, and their hair was fantastic, and their dating lives were off the scale. Then there was Epitaph, and they were the bad boys. They were not playing any stupid high school events. They were playing weed-filled parties with ripped jeans and playing ACDC and Black Sabbath. And then there was my band, the Drama Club Band, uh, The Electric Sheep, which incredibly also featured Adam Jones, the guitarist of Tool. Uh, He was the bass player in The Electric Sheep. And so we auditioned for this show. With one of our original songs we didn't have the technical ability to play anybody else's songs so we had to write our own later vindicated but at the time that was a market mark against you and uh the guy said yeah can you learn burn up born to be wild the show's in four months and knowing there was no possible way we could ever learn born to be wild i said yes of course we'll take the gig and so we hacked our way through it and tried to learn how to tune our guitars and it was kind of a ba- I, in my mind it was kind of a battle of the bands between my band the electric sheep and destiny but they had all the cards they had all the riffs and they had all the ladies and whatnot uh, but the night of the performance they had already performed they had done very very well i think it was with a crosby stills nash and young song and we came out completely out of tune. the keyboards were out of tune adam and i both came in on the wrong notes but we were on a riser and uh the photograph of the book captures like this it was really like the moment of my of my rock and roll epiphany it's right before the chorus and things were not going well musically but i did have some athletic ability. And I jumped off that riser, got tremendous height and the place went apeshit and the roof came off. And then I realized that rocking was just as important as rocking. And, uh, it was, you know, the, the seams came apart in the auditorium. We finished to this tremendous standing ovation. And I really did feel inhabited by the Holy spirit of rock and roll. And my course was set.
0: Speaking of Adam Jones, here you guys are. You are uh, purportedly practicing, but it does look like you're posing just as much. <laughs> which is,
1: well, well, I mean, there was—it's yeah. <laughs> sort of a forty-nine fifty-one uh, a ratio there. But that's in my mom's basement, and we—that's where our band practiced. And uh, Adam, and I, Adam was a, was a very pretty skillful guitar player at that time. And I started late. I started when I was seventeen years old, and so he was an early mentor and helped me learn some chords and some licks. What was he playing like
0: back then? Like, how close was he? How far along was he
1: to being the the player that we? I mean, none of us. I mean, we were all we were all teenage. But he, you know, he had he his older brother played Alan Jones, and and they and so he had like a he he had, he had a Billy that he was also sort of a dark and mysterious character that arrived from the Bay Area, you know, and that was. Could not be more like if someone arrived from, you know, Evanston. We thought it was pretty exotic up in Libertyville. But this kid arrived from the Bay Area, and he was sort of a dark and mysterious character that has musical abilities, and uh, you know, and was a, was a great artist as well, like a great prosthetic makeup artist, and even back then. So he had a his path was was beginning to be charted pretty early on.
0: In a session like the one captured in that picture, what kind of stuff would you guys have been playing? What, what that kind of I,
1: believe, I believe we were actually scoring a film in that session. Whoa. We made these. Yeah, we made. Uh, a lot of these kind of comedy horror movies, Cox Cable Access allowed us, uh, uh, you, you could get their equipment for free. So we would get it on a Friday, have to return it by Monday morning, and we would make these kind of grotesque, we would go to the, the butcher shop to get like the, the meat for the for the massacre finale, and then they required score. So Adam and I on my Fostech re- recorder, we were, I think we were down in my basement recording some score at that time.
0: So here we have uh, a... Fairly unique super group. Maybe you can take us through exactly what was going on. Sure,
1: there. sure. That was the night of the Radio Free LA broadcast. That Zach de la Rocha, Flea, and Stephen Perkins of Jane's Addiction on drums. And it was the night of, I believe, the kind of in the Clinton inauguration or second inauguration or Bush one. Uh, but we put together a show. That was broadcast globally. That had performances. We performed. That super group performed. Cypress Hill back performed as well. We also had interviews with Noam Chomsky, Mumia Bujamal Jamal from death row, Leonard Peltier from jail, uh, student activists in Santa Monica. It was just kind of like amalgamation of of global activists and global musicians coming together to make a radio free show. It was a pretty great night. This is just an extraordinary document. Uh, Mark noise chart ninety four ninety five. One of the things that's that's in the in the Whatever It Takes book is a number of these noise charts that I used to that I created. I made a transition from being like a stereotypical heavy metal shredder to uh, coming up with more experimental sounds. And so I would come up with these crazy sounds on the guitar, and then the next day I would forget how I made them. So I began recording them on little Radio Shack tape player and then had an accompanying noise chart where i would say jet airline sounds like it's underwater and then i would write down i use this guitar with this pedal setting etc so those noise charts were really the the building blocks of the more exotic end of my sonic spectrum and i found a bunch of those like all, all these pictures from this book like i Went through old closets and garages and whatnot, and I had these notebooks which had like the originals. Like, those are pre-Evil Empire, right there, I think. And it had like all of the stuff that I was coming up with that later found its way into both the Rage and Audio Slave catalog.
0: It occurred to me that few things could epitomize this sort of Tamro experience than coming up with these brilliant, unhinged, insane ways of using a guitar and then carefully charting them <laughs> yeah. on a note on paper.
1: That's the yin and the yang. <laughs> yeah cuz by I mean, part of it that that is well spotted but you know the best moments of being in a band or of cre- or being a musician are those moments of unexpected inspiration where you know sort of the a lucky moment of sound and the time vectors and ability and whatever technique all come together to create, like you have your divining rod up and you bring down something that you've never heard before come out of an instrument. And that's very exciting. But then there's a certain amount of craft that has to go in it afterwards. One is like, I can't tell you how many of those great ideas were just lost because I slept on it and I thought, Oh, it'll be fine. I'll come up with that in the morning. So I began this sort of, this rigorous regimen of writing them all down and then finding ways to integrate them into songs. I've heard you say many times both
0: you know, in, in the book and in, in the Audible thing and in the past that, about the sort of intellectual process that led you to add these noises to your guitar repertoire. But was there also a moment of serendipity or moments when you know, maybe you pulled the plug out and it made the sound and it started to spark that? Were, were there Absolutely. things like I mean, that?
1: The, the ground zero of that was I was a junior in college at, at, at Harvard and my roommate, my roommate was a huge fan of opera. And I was a huge fan of metal. And so he got so tired of me playing like Grim Reaper riffs, you know, while he was <laughs> trying to listen to La in the other in the other room. So it was at the time the Eddie Van Halen guitar, Eddie Van Halen was Ascendant and was hugely popular. And the cool thing about his guitar was it only had one knob on it, a volume knob I turned it up. I was saddled with this guitar that had a bunch of knobs on it, including a toggle switch. So one day sort of depressed and playing my, Not cool, uh, Gibson Explorer guitar. I began fiddling with the toggle switch and the wah wah pedal. And he came. My roommate came in enraged. He was like, "Did you buy a fucking keyboard too? Are you trying to kill me?" And I thought, "Did that sound like a keyboard? Mm. That's that's interesting." And so I began practicing the eccentricities in my playing. I was practicing like six eight hours a day at the time, and most of it was like sort of the chordal. I mean, the riffing and the solos and the scales and whatnot. But I began practicing. The stuff that sounded like a keyboard. And then later, you know, once the horse was out of the barn, in the beginning of Rage Against the Machine, where I, I self-identified as the DJ in the band. And it felt like a lane that I was the only one on. And every day, I was just like, well, what happens if we rub an Allen wrench against the strings? What if you pull the jack out? Anything that create could create any kind of sound that then could be manipulated with a small set of pedals became fair game. And then I have a picture of you leaving the uh, guitar me. I, I think I've never said out loud before. Yeah. Uh, the, the
0: guitar me at, uh, at Occupy Wall Street. And this picture was taken by my colleague, uh, Sasha Lecha, and It's a great oh, right picture.
1: On. It was around the time that my second son was born and, and Occupy was, had just begun in, in New York. And I'd been a part of the Wisconsin occupation of the, capitol building there and, and i was like if, if, if there was ever a call for the night watchman it was occupy wall street so i just you know said goodbye to my young family and said i'll be back very very soon and my wife was fortunately very understanding and uh went there spent a number of days in the streets playing songs with the guitar me and uh it's uh, the, the set list from that day is still uh to my guitar
0: how important in your mind was occupy to the moment we're living in now how much does all of that connect
1: up to me the you know the word class has never been a dirty word but it certainly was in print and in publication in the United States and one thing that the occupy movement did do was it put the ideal the idea of grotesque economic inequality on the front page globally and that is certainly playing into you know events now you know i think that the neoliberal global economy that has sold out the working and middle class chickens came home to roost with these you know, right-wing demagogues here and in the UK and in Brazil, and now we're uh, reaping what we sowed. And I think the Occupy was, a, in a way, a flare gun uh, shot across the bow, a warning of that uh, imminent collapse.
0: We can talk about this one.
1: That's, yeah, sure. That's just the other day. My son, Rhodes Morello, took that. He was uncredited when that appeared on, online. But, uh, yeah, my, my mom, Mary Morello, has been a proud social justice warrior for her 96 years and uh, ardent anti-racist you know, we were the only, it was just my mom who's Irish Italian of Irish Italian descent and myself living in Libertyville. And she, you know, said, we are a black family and proudly a black family. And, you know, from working with the urban league in the uh, seventies to participating in anti-colonial movements in Africa in the uh, sixties, you know, she's been a lifetime supporter of racial justice. And we were out the other day because we are, you know, we're locked down here. And because we have the old older folks here, we've been doing our protesting, you know, sort of without risking getting the grandma's COVID. Uh, But my mom wanted to be a part of that. And we made that sign and my son took a picture of it. So three generations of Morello. Coming together to fight racism. Work at home radicalism,
0: I guess. You'd yeah. It <laughs> it right. yeah,
1: it is. It is. It is. It's work at home radicalism. But there's a studio here too, so there's a, there's the ability to you know to project out from the bunker. You know, radio free LA in in in
0: a way still does exist. At some point, you said that your mom is the most radical member of your family. Is that
1: is that a joke or is she actually? To oh no, no, You right? would if you know if you had her over to Thanksgiving dinner, you'd you'd know that for sure. <laughs> and she, you know, she's you know she's my mom is a you know self identifying radical you know communist you know who's you know been she was in the soviet union five times she's been to cuba five five or six times you know she is an anti-imperialist and you know and she was a high school teacher in the archly conservative libertyville illinois is so conservative that lake county the county that it's in they don't even run democratic candidates for offices there because it's so archly conservative and this was a she was a teacher at libertyville public high school for years and you know blew kids minds you know this was at the Sort of the Vietnam War era up into Reagan, and that having that kind of radical voice in the school and in my household certainly had an impact.
0: To what extent has she been a direct force nudging you ever? For example, when you went into the audio slave years and your music became less overtly political. <laughs> would you hear from your mom, uh, dis- reminding you to, to, to stay? No, d-
1: there's also, I mean, th- those years did also, uh, encapsulate the formation of the access of justice organization with Serge tank in and the beginning of my career as the night watchman. It could not more
0: relate to the themes that have been in your music all these years, everything that's going on. So what is your reaction to everything that's going on from the, it's a big question, but these final months perhaps of the Trump regime and the, what, what appears to be the gestures at, at authoritarianism, yeah. the burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement reaching more broadly than it ever had before, Uh, the pandemic. (laughs) What what is your take on where we are right now?
1: Yeah, it's a a lot of crazy vectors slamming slamming together. And I, you know, the thing about whether it's the music of Rage or by solo stuff or Prophets of Rage or Street Sweeper Social Club or whatever, you know, this stuff is coming to a head, but there's nothing new about it. I mean, those Rage songs, Zach's brilliant lyrics and those Rage songs were written during the Clinton administration. There's nothing new about racism. There's nothing new about imperialism. Those are two of the fundamental building blocks of the united states of america those are the cornerstones of what we refer to as our democracy and there's a cognitive dissonance that we have to live in every single day which i think has come to a head that this land of the free you know the phrase black lives matter and why people get so wound up and they're like no all lives matter well they wrote liberty the people who wrote liberty and justice for all didn't mean us they did all didn't mean us <laughs> like when you say all that's not black people you know in the documents that founded the country and so i think the combination of i don't think it has to do trump is a symptom trump is not i mean he's personally horrible in a lot of ways but he's a simple the, the symptom of what i was talking about earlier it's this, it's 30 40 years of this neoliberal economic policies that have robbed the middle class and there's both under obama and clinton and the Bushes and. Uh, um, that have robbed the middle class that have robbed the working class outrageously. And so these racist demagogues have fertile, like it's easy to blame whether it's the Mexicans or the Muslims or whatever to engender this. Now you see a lot of, I mean, the one thing that's very, very encouraging, there's a lot of like non-black people fighting back too. And you see that in the streets and the music they're pumping is rage against the machine. And some of my own music, I'm very proud of that.
0: Yeah. I believe they were chanting killing in the name of in Portland recently. And you got a kick out of that. Well,
1: I mean, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me is a universal sentiment. And I think, you know, while it's a simple lyric, I think it's one of Zach's most brilliant. And I, and to me, it relates to to uh, Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass said that the moment he became free was not the moment that he was physically loosed from his bonds. It was the moment when Master said yes, and he said no. And that's the essence of fuck you, I will not do what you tell me. Uh, and that's why it's uh, encouraging to hear it shouted at the fed goons who are shooting tear gas at American citizens.
0: I did wanna sideline for a minute and just ask what you recall about the, the creation of that tune from start to finish. I know that you were, I think you were teaching a guitar lesson in yeah, Drop D. But,
1: yeah, I was. And came
0: up with the riff. Right.
1: Yeah, I was teaching guitar lesson to a local, like a, a, an accomplished local scenester musician and was showing them how to play Drop D. Maynard Keenan of Tool had taught me how to do Drop D. So it became, soon became part of my, uh, my repertoire. And I was actually playing bass at the time. Uh, uh, crappy Ibanez bass. And I was like, when you play drop D tuning, I showed him how to tune down. It just sort of suggests different patterns to your fingers. And the first pattern I played was that. I said, hold on one second. I got my little Radio Shack recorder. I went record that. Um, And then it was originally an instrumental there's a Rage Against the Machine video from Cal State Northridge, which is our first public performance where we opened the show with an instrumental version of Killing in the Name. And Timmy, I think, came up with that really cool, like, bum, 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 bum. It's got, you know, Brad's, you know, crowd bouncing beat is there from the very, very beginning. And then uh, Zach laced it with the historic lyrics that you hear today. We actually left the lyrics off of the um, lyric sheet of the first record because it's, I think it's, Two lines, 16 fuck yous, and one motherfucker. And we're like that, you know, in the midst of all this grand political poetry. We'll let just that one stand for itself. So even in the instrumental version it's
0: just like Donna dunt," but then nothing like or did that I don't know, but I don't a-
1: recall I know, I, have, I have a, re- a reference I'll have to but check it out The Donna yeah. dunt was an important part and I remember our A&R <laughs> guy Michael Goldstone who's a genius he's got signed Pearl Jam he was really the fifth beatle early on he right. was, a, he, was a, he was a great help but he wanted us to take that part out of the song I think he heard hit single as long as it doesn't have that crazy part where it just stops a lot. <laughs> uh, but that was a a bit of a lift from Zeppelin's good times bad times that dumb dun part and and we felt pretty confident that need to stay in the song and I think history has borne that out.
0: Back again to this moment are are you seeing signs of hope is a tide changing or where do you see it all going right now?
1: Yeah. I mean I think it's all part of a continuum and there, and they, there's the two things that are you know like the the sun and the moon rising are There's oppression and there is resistance to oppression. And I didn't choose to be a guitar player. That chose me. And so I've done my best to weave my convictions into my vocation throughout my creative adult creative life, and you know whatever I can contribute with, you know whether it's a song tomorrow, whether it's a, a Rage Against the Machine tour in the in in the future uh, with my comrades, I hope to be up to the challenge. As far as the arc of history, you know Dr. King said it, you know it bends towards justice, but there's a lot. It's a crooked path along the way. And the thing, if, there, if there's one message that's in the DNA of everything that I've been involved in is that the world is not. Going going to change itself. And that is up to you. The bad news is that it's not always easy. The good news is that when the world has been changed in progressive, radical, or even revolutionary ways, it's been changed by people no different to anyone reading this or watching this now. People that they didn't have more power, creativity, intelligence, money, control. It was average, ordinary people who you don't read about in history books, who have moved the fulcrum of history towards a more just and decent planet. And that's what it's going to take now.
0: And this is a conversation that I've had with other people on on the left. Obviously, Biden wouldn't have been your first choice for the nominee, and you're far to the left of any existing Democratic Party. I would say left to uh, left of Bernie Sanders. But do you hope he wins?
1: Do you, does it matter to you? Well, I mean, the, the the old public enemy lyric. You know, most of my heroes don't appear on no stamps. None of none of my heroes ever appear on the ballot. You know, <laughs> the one thing I I always vote, and and while I'm a Harsh critic of both parties. I always vote because my people have died trying to vote. My people in Kenya and my people here, you know, have fought and died to be able to have access to have a voice. Now, is that the only thing you do? Hell no, because the world's not going to change unless you change it. And the world's not, it, those changes are not going to come from a Joe Biden or a, or a Joe Biden Supreme Court nominee. That kind of change always comes from the bottom. So I put my trust. In the people, uh, but I always go to the ballot box.
0: So you do hope Joe Biden wins. <laughs> that's, uh,
1: that's that's nothing you will get me to say on camera or in print. <laughs> I, I mean, there is there is a loom. I will say that there is a the thing that's the thing that is going to make the only change that matters is a radical systemic transformation. That's the only thing that is going to make the fundamental differences that are going to save our planet from environmental disaster and from racist horror. And from imperialist war, that's what's going to change the planet for for the better. In the short term, if one candidate vows to have their foot on the accelerator, where the polar bears are going to be the lucky ones for going extinct first, that's something that one has to factor, you know, when they go into the ballot box.
0: Let's talk about what's going on in the streets right now. You know, there's an effort by the Trump administration to, Bill Barr said this morning, that there's an attack on the government itself going on. That these protests are, you know, that, that, that these aren't protests. That these are some some other thing. What do you make of the mass movement and of the reaction to it, and particularly of this this business of sending in federal forces?
1: Yeah. Well, I I hope there's an attack on the government. So that's what it's that it would to be. in that in that he's correct. And thank goodness. You know, that's a. It's funny that these these people who like sort of sort of identify as you know from these. You know, uh, don't tread on me, conservatives. I mean, this country was founded in a revolution. And those guys, while a lot of them owned slaves, they did tar and fucking feather the British. Tax collectors and and whatnot. So the history of strong protest against unjust authority is one that is is a part of us. What I make of those protests is that, like people are standing up against horrific. It's awesome that people in huge numbers have been sustaining this anti-white supremacist protest all over the country and all over the globe. And it is a way. It's an awakening and it's a reckoning that has been brought to a head. I think by Trump. I think by the coronavirus. By those variables, where people are finally having Having to look at the horrific history of racism and imperialism in this country in a way that they never have before. And if you do that, it's so easy to like cognitive distance is something that, that Amer- without cognitive distance, America would lose its fucking mind. Because, you know, George Washington once sold a black man for a keg of molasses. Thomas Jefferson raped a 14 year old, had seven children with her. 16 or 17 of people who were president of the United States owned other human beings. That's hard. Like, that's hard. Like, that's what we are, and that's where we're from. Racism is as absolutely as American as baseball and apple pie. And that's just true. And it's easy to sort of sweep it under the rug and go, like, we're all one kumbaya family watching the Super Bowl. But those, we've never had truth and reconciliation in this country. We've never had that, you know, and we've never gotten past the founding sins of this nation. And I think that you're seeing it now in the streets. Will we get past it? No. But will we fight? Will we continue to fight and resist? Absolutely.
0: I thought it was really interesting the point you made that in, in your own life, you felt like you'd almost, and I quote you, changed color in the sense that there was no doubt growing up that you were black, None. Uh, quite the opposite. You, you faced over <laughs> racism from time to time, at least. But then in the rock world, people somehow stopped, yeah. somehow imagined they were white because of contextual something or other. It's, yeah. it, it's a yeah, kind of it a, is. a it is. thing.
1: It is a very, very curious thing. And, you know, the you're growing up in Libertyville, I, as a documented in the stuff we're talking about, there was a noose in my family's garage. This other time, this these guys, you know, opened up a car trunk and they had a noose and were using all the words you might imagine one would use to describe the only black kid in all-white town. They invited me to get in the trunk. You know, there was a lot of, you know, I was a, I was like a unicorn. People were constantly touching my hair and marveling that the back of my hand was different color than the front of my hand, and openly, you know, like matter-of-factly questioning whether I could possibly be their intellectual equal. You know, and then later on, I'm in a rock band that has songs that are on stations which pr- play predominantly white artists, and my vernacular is not stereotypically urban. And whenever I, you know, tweet or instagram or reference being black there is a percentage of my fans that freak the fuck out and they're like you are not black <laughs> I'm like i used to be super black <laughs> i mean i was black as coal." i mean <laughs> on homecoming night when i showed up at the door in libertyville i was fucking black as <laughs> coal but you know later on they just they can't they, and it's it's hard they don't but you're like you're lying you know you're not I'm like i don't know what to tell you I think the only thing
0: more bizarre than that is the occasional people who you see popping up on Twitter and Instagram saying, I used to like your music, Tom. I used to like it until you started getting political.
1: Occasional. It is. I mean, it really is like everyone should sit down and like Google cognitive dissonance and see where they may be able to check that box in their life. It's very, very helpful to do that. But yeah, people who they're huge. I mean, Paul Ryan, of course, was the poster boy example of that, the archly conservative prick. Paul Ryan was, you know, he proudly boasted of being a Rage Against the Machine fan. I I let him have it, you know, but it's not, it's not uncommon. It, it is, I will say this, just to be clear, that I've always felt, and there may be differences of opinion in fans with a political bent, that all fans are welcome. There's no political litmus test for listening to or liking the music, At all because I have seen the redemptive power of music in people's lives and in my own. I mean, I grew up on the most misogynist, devil worshiping metal music, which was not, didn't, did not have zero effect on the way that I looked at women or religion. And then it was music like The Clash and other bands that connected with me in a way that teachers or broadcasters didn't and revealed a truth to me that changed my life. And so, I encourage people of a conservative conservative bent to listen to whether it's Rage or Atlas Underground or whatever.
0: A lot of that music has, uh, you know, aged incredibly well and has a, a whole fan base of its own. of its own Right there's a member of Mumford and Sons who named Audio Slave as the band that got him into music. Yeah. You know, but ultimately, I mean, like, what did you take away from your time with Chris? What did you learn from him about music and about life?
1: Uh, I have to credit him he saved us you know and we kind of saved each other like we were we were kind of adrift and had well Rage is a great band there were a lot of frustrations and trying to like figure it out and write music and we wrote that first record so quickly and was so fun and we would never met a never met a vocalist with that sort of innate ability to conjure beautiful and terrifying melody out of the ether never but I mean i'd never seen it rick rubin who produced the first record was like you guys don't know how lucky you are (laughs) you went from one of the greatest front men and lyricists of all time zach de la rocha to one of the greatest singers in the history of rock and roll music and we would whether it was a three chord chord progression or some complicated riff chris would effortlessly create a great song out of it and so that was the first thing just sort of working around that kind of genius and brilliance and then he was a great dude too you know he was all he was his genius was that he was able to tap into the darker quarters of his psyche. And they were there and they were plentiful and they fueled his best music. Um, and they made him in some ways ultimately unknowable. But you know, it's uh every day I miss that guy. It's still horrible and it's a it is a unhealable wound that he has gone.
0: I think some and you've said yourself that the lyrics you wound up writing uh, as, as night watchman showed there's a lot more going on inside you and there's there's a hauntedness to your own psyche and that you know at the same time you don't seem to have that streak of self-destructiveness no. that some people that some artists have that some people in rock and roll have have you pondered that sort of i mean it's a very fortunate thing to be missing
1: it is it well, is it's and its own it's unusual and i, don't, I mean i'm surprised in some ways because the that part of my makeup you know part of it is you know part of it i think is coming from like the morellos were coal miners you know and like they got up and they went to fucking work you know and that was a part of it it's like you get up and you go to work man and and then there's a slight sort of mania to the work too that's a strand that's in in my family and you know, I can't stop whether it's pushing against injustice or whether it's writing riffs. I've never been able to kind of turn that off I mean, during the during the beginning of Corona times for the first time in my adult, since I was seven, since I picked up a guitar at 17 years old, I was adrift. I had no ideas. I didn't want to play music. I didn't want, I had nothing creative. I didn't want to do anything. I, it was, while I never felt sad, it was sort of exhibiting, you know, some of the depressive tendencies that, you know, that you box. You could, you could check some of those boxes, but I didn't want to have anything to do with music or creativity. And then it was about nine or nine or 10 weeks in where I finally, you know, there was, you know, one one of the triggers for it was actually there was a substantial black lives matter protest in my hometown of Libertyville, Illinois, a town where I was once the only black person, a town where there were nooses in the garage. Uh, they had about over a Showed up at the town square and marched. They had like a Muslim minister speak, and people from some of the uh, African American uh, suburbs come and talk. Some of my friends' children, you know, were carrying signs, you know, in the streets, and it made me think like like get off your ass." (laughs) And uh, that's when I, you know, I wrote that song "Stand Up" with Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons and uh, Shia Diamond and Bloody Beetroots. It re-energized me. I've been working a lot on music and. Like, during this time where, you know, I'm trapped in the studio, I really intend to make the most of it.
0: Yeah, I, that song is great, actually. And, Thanks, and yeah. I, I think I could feel the, the creative fervor in there. It's a pretty exciting piece of
1: music, actually. Yeah, there's, more, there's more jams coming. There's, you know, across the spectrum, like, there's a, a Night Watchman song we're putting out in a, you know, in a few days that, that I wrote a while ago, but, you know, really kind of speaks to this racial moment. And I've been cranking, like, the riffs have been hot and heavy and kind of low-hanging fruit lately. And I've really been enjoying it.
0: I'll never get over it came to seem normal, but the fact that the guy from Rage ended up in the E Street Band uh, (laughs) is just, I mean, you know, it's just like one of these things where, you know, sure, it seems normal now if you did you know, played all those shows. It's pretty crazy though, and pretty awesome. And I won't won't take the the awesomeness and uniqueness of that for granted, but when you play that many shows, I mean, you had done the appearances and and you you come out and and, uh, melted our minds by uh, playing the solo on Ghost of Tom Joad, which, by the way, not not only can you play, but you're capable of doubling it in the studio, as I learned. Which is that that's just insane. But to dig into the core of that band and and play rhythm and play you know a million songs over the you know that many different songs and that many shows, what did that do to kind of the musical core of you? What did you learn in that experience on the deep? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, it's it's part of the bizarre and incredible mosaic of my creative life, where. You know, I've, you know, Bruce Springsteen, I, re, really Bruce is probably the only person that I would be a sideman in their band. You know, I like, that's not, I don't, I don't feel like I'm kind of built that way, but I, I love Bruce Springsteen. He's the only, you know, friend that, you know, I subscribe to a fanzine about. So he's a, that's kind of rarefied uh, air there. And I mean, the last tour that we did in, in North America, it was 34 shows and 182 different songs uh and i never had the jukebox gene which a lot of like you know musicians have who have played thousands of of cover band club dates i never had that so for me it was work like i had to work i learned about 250 songs before the first show because i wanted to be ready like i didn't want to be the problem you know uh the easter band has been great had you know when i first started playing easter band have been great for over 40 years without me in it. So the idea is, first of all, don't cause no harm. You know, and then secondly, when Bruce gives the nod, you know, try to blow the roof off the place with some crazy solo that E Street fans would not be expecting. But I, you know, watching him work on a daily basis was very inspiring. He was absolutely, as as a friend, as a person, absolutely as advertised and grounded and as committed to excellence in every aspect. And, you know, we would play shows where, you know, you play a show in Johannesburg and you play a show in Peoria and some of the same fans are in the front row of those shows. And they're very excited to see Bruce Springsteen. No one's more excited to be in the room on that night than Bruce Springsteen is, you know, and that kind of commitment to, to, I've played shows for 42 years and tonight's going to be the greatest show. And it may be, you know, in the second night in Perth or something. Um, And that kind of commitment, was, it was inspiring to be around that. And I would take a minute, you know, honestly like every night, I might give myself 15 20 seconds, maybe during born to run to just stand to take like 15 seconds off and stand there and just kind of look over and go like trip out. I am rocking born to run with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs>
0: Have you thought about the future of the guitar? Do you care about the future of the guitar? It is strange that you know you unlocked all these doors to new things to do with the guitar. And it seemed like, oh, there's this continuum of guitar heroes, as continuing, here's this new one, Tom Morello. I wonder what the next 30 guitar heroes will be. And, it's not like I mean there's you know Saint Vincent uh, Jack White came a little after you but then it, it starts to like peter off so
1: yeah what, yeah what
0: do you make of that and does it does it bother you on some deep level or is it just kind of the way things go
1: Yeah it it, it doesn't bother me but I'm but let me tell you I, I will go raging against the dying of that light like I, I in the in the early nineties everyone was convinced the guitar music was done. And you could now sample, DJs could now sample guitars, so you never need another guitar player. So I thought, well, let's see what happens if I play their shit on my guitar with two hands and a Marshall stack. Let's see if I can make DJs outdated. I was unsuccessful in that, but it was a way for me to just kind of fuel the fire. Like with the Atlas Underground record, that was another way of like, I want to make guitar something that is heavy as it's ever been and as contemporary as it's ever been. I'm continuing to work on heavy guitar music that is looking to the future. And that you know, that I love, first of all, first, first and foremost has to be something that I love and I love riff rock and I love guitar solos, but how I've also made 19 records already. And I don't want to repeat myself in that regard. So how to stay fresh and energized as a guitar player. And I'm, you know, whether guitar, whether, hard rock whatever guitar music goes the way of jazz and becomes something that is relegated to if there are ever live shows again i'm not so sure that's the case though because i mean you look at you know whether it is bands now that that's prior to covid whether it's rage or foo fighters or chili peppers or nine shows whatever those are you know those are acts still selling a lot of tickets you know in uh 2019 and so i'm hopeful that there will be future generations that connect to what i believe is the greatest instrument ever created there's nothing at all, ever, like that feeling of strapping on an electric guitar, hitting the distortion pedal, and playing that chord. It resonates in the reptilian DNA in a way that nothing has ever done. Now, you
0: don't know anything that uh, any of us don't, but just based on your gut and your hopes, how hopeful are you that you will be back on stage next year and these these Rage shows will happen?
1: No one knows. I mean, that's, that's no one knows. That's it. We don't know. I we were sad to have had to postpone, but for the safety of you know fans, band, and friends and crew, uh, you know I very much am looking forward to rocking the planet, and we'll, I hope that as soon as I can be safely done, I'm all for it. In
0: 1999, you were, you told David Frick that you wished dearly wished that Rage would make more music and that you, you know, your style would be to, you know, constantly be pumping out material. And in the end, you did constantly pump out material, it just wasn't with Rage Against the Machine. So yeah. is it possible there's a bright side that it actually opened, that it's because it wasn't a consistently recording band and it didn't become one that, that opened up all these floors I mean, for you? I,
1: I always imagined myself, w- with regards to bands, a monogamous musician. I was gonna be in one band forever, kind of, you know, like the Van Halen model or something, something like that and then you know it took rage a long time between records and i just had too much music in me you know and so i started i remixed a krs one song i remixed an indigo girl song then it was like wherever there was a studio door open i walked through it you know and it has led to this like you know i said earlier like this really incredibly rich mosaic of musical experiences each one informing the next like i got to see how wu-tang clan works and writes a song i got to see how bruce springsteen works and writes a song um you know, from, I have played on from Kenny Chesney records to Sepultura records, you know, and I never would have imagined that setting out, but all of it has informed my music and made me in a way fearless to walk through any studio door. And, and like, I mean, even this, this last song stand up that we we're talking about, you know, it has, it's, it's an Italian EDM producer, a black trans soul singer activist, and the singer of imagined dragons who have come together with political intent to make a song that is both rocking and speaks to the moment that's the kind of thing that i never would have imagined in 1999 would never have imagined being able to do and now it's kind of we do that on a tuesday and a thursday tom thanks
0: very much for taking time to do this do you want to say anything else to maybe the uh, the people on the streets right now
1: I've been fortunate to you know, be in the band Rage Against the Machine with those comrades, and that band is speaking to them clearly. We, I've always made music to try to amplify the voices of people who are doing the grassroots work, the people in the trenches, and the people throwing the bricks. And all of those things are in evidence now, and I would like to try to continue to that soundtrack of protest. And no successful social movement in this country has ever existed without an awesome soundtrack. And so I'll continue to try to do my best to contribute to that.
0: So that's today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. I always read them. But as always, stay safe and we will see you next week.